scripture reading this morning. The sermon text is found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. I'm reading in the English Standard Version, Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. Now we're taking a handful of Sundays here, about four, to talk about <clears throat> closeness to Jesus. What is closeness to Jesus? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it require of us? And hopefully, if you were with us last week, you notice a little bit of a, of a chain here. Matthew 11, last week, we have come to me. Jesus gives this open, welcoming invitation, especially to those who are weary and tired and burdened, and I will give you rest, and you'll take your, my yoke upon you and find that it's easy and my burden is light. Come to me, Matthew 11. And then you get to Matthew 16, and it's if anyone would come after me, which actually means if anyone wants to get close to me. And so we're talking about what closeness to Jesus is about. But Matthew 11 and Matthew 16 kind of feel like they have a different flavor. You get in Matthew 11 and you feel the welcome and the invitation and the warmth and it's like Jesus is just saying, man, come here and let me just give you a hug, you know. You're living into the name. And then you get to Matthew 16 and it's like, Serious inquiries only, suddenly. This feels like living up to the name. It's like I've got to prove my seriousness by taking up my cross, as it's said here. And some present it like that. This is a text uh, that's a favorite of many who sort of like this rock-ribbed kind of discipleship. You know, it doesn't matter if you feel close to Jesus. You just better follow him, you know, or else. <laughs> but this text is about closeness to Jesus. If anyone would come after me. We know this text. A lot of us who've been in church, we've heard this text. If you would come after me, Jesus says. In other words, if, if you want to get close to me, here's what I require. And the requirement is not an entry fee, it's a response. And he's moving to his cross. That's why he uses the imagery. Imagery, I'll say it momentarily, it, it was nothing that welcomed anyone. It was in fact, talking about a cross scared people to death. But here he is saying, if you want to get close to me, it's going to require some self-denial. And he pictures that. He actually rehabilitates an image that, that it's hard to even conceive of being rehabilitational. The cross of all things. If, if the Roman authorities decided to crucify you, what happened is that the horizontal beam was placed upon your shoulders with your arms tied over it. And this after you had received the most severe beating. The Romans actually had three kinds of beatings. And the crucified got the worst. It was called the verberatio. And so your shoulders were shredded. 
And this uh, heavy beam is placed upon your shoulders and you are tied to it. And now with all this blood loss from your back and upper body down to your buttocks, you're having to walk to a place of crucifixion and then that horizontal beam will be affixed to the vertical beam and you'll be nailed on both. It was uh, absolute humiliation. In fact, Roman citizens could not be crucified except by way of the emperor himself saying you will be. This was reserved for non-citizens, for those the Romans wanted to dominate through dehumanization. That's what it was all about. And so for someone to take up his cross, Jesus says, this uses this language, everybody associated that immediately with death. And not just death, but slow death, painful death, shameful death. It was thought by Romans and Jews alike that to be placed on a cross was the, the ultimate way to shame somebody. So to take up your cross meant you're going to a place of shameful execution. But now Jesus doesn't shame us. So why does he use this particular imagery that is so shameful? This wasn't a noble thing to aspire to. Oh, take up your cross. You know, in, in Christian circles, it's, it's got this nobility attached to it. But in where he's saying it at this point in time, Matthew 16, it's also in Mark 9, it's also in the book of Luke. Uh, th this is not something that anyone was, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't winning friends for himself talking like this. It scared people to death. Because they heard Jesus saying, if, if you want to get close to me, it's going to involve for you a kind of death, a kind of dying to yourself. What is it that has to die? Well, I think we can pick up two um, things that have to die uh, from this text. One is self-preservation and the other is self-importance. What has to die, what Jesus is getting at in this particular passage, is um, our cowardice has to die. That's what we preserve ourselves for, it's really out of cowardice that we're self-preserving, and our pride has to die. That's all about self-importance. So that's the call here. We'll look at it from these two angles. Closeness to Jesus requires the death of self-preservation cowardice being an example of how we preserve ourselves at all costs. And then we'll look at closeness to Jesus requiring the death of self-importance, which is a death to our pride. Now, there's a paradox. Jesus' teaching is full of paradox. By paradox, what do we mean? Well, if you put two things that look to be contradictory next to one another and say both are true, that's a paradox. You're putting two things that seem to cancel each other out and you're putting them in tension. Jesus taught this way all the time. We saw it last week in Matthew 11. The easy yoke, the light burden. This, this is a paradox. Who talks about easy yokes? Who talks about light burdens? Jesus does. He's getting a both and for us. Well, here too in Matthew 16, some paradox in this call. Because the call involves dying, but there's no call to seek death. You may encounter death having Jesus' name on you. Plenty have through the centuries on into the present time. Certain places in our world that following the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is uh, a possibility of, of losing your, your liberty and, and losing your life. So there is a call here to seek not death, but to seek a kind of dying, 
to put to death self-preservation and self-importance to get close to Jesus. And yet what we discover is that self-preservation and self-importance, they die hard. (laughs) They are long, slow, drawn-out kinds of deaths. So he says, Matthew 11, last week's text, come to me and you'll get a light burden. And then he says in Matthew 16, come after me and you're going to take up your cross. And you go, well, these seem to be competing ideas. But actually, the cross, our cross, taking up our cross, as he puts it, it's not a competing idea with the light burden that he says we get in coming to him that we talked about last week in Matthew 11. And the reason why not is because our cross, look how he puts it. Jesus said to his disciples, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. He doesn't say my cross. He's going to his own cross, but he says, take up your cross. So he he makes it personal. And our cross, you know, a lot of times we'll say uh, we're putting up with something. uh, Something uh, is discouraging to us, some hard thing in life, something we don't like having on us. And we'll say, well, I guess it's my cross. You know, we, we talk like this. Uh, I guess being misunderstood is going to be my cross in life. I guess having a, you know, an angry spouse is going to be my, this is my cross. Uh, this, is, this is not about that. Even though you may talk that way, this is not about bearing difficulties of life. Our cross, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, it isn't something imposed on us by God or uh, over expectations of God to weigh us down that we have to live up to. The reason it's not is because, think about Jesus' cross. He's heading to his cross in this passage, in this place in Matthew. He's going there. His cross actually frees us. His cross is our lightness of being as Christians because of what Jesus did there. His self-sacrifice to completely satisfy the judgment of God against our guilt. He took his own judgment. Jesus took his own judgment, he being God, His own judgment against us, he took for us so that he, God, could be just and justifier, as it's put in Romans 3, both and. And so we're freed then by his cross. We're now freed to bear our cross in response to him because he's freed us from the burden of earning our salvation. He's freed us from the burden of shouldering our rights at all costs. He's freed us from preserving our life at all costs. That's the way to live heavily and fearfully. So two takeaways from this. I've mentioned them already. First, closeness to Jesus requires the death of self-preservation. He says in verse 24, if you're going to come after me, in other words, you want to get close to me, you've got to deny yourself. There's going to be some self-denial involved. You're going to be taking up this cross, this instrument of death. There's going to be this death to self in certain Uh, in certain respects and you're going to follow me and he says verse 25 for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it now we're all interested in saving our own lives we are and I don't even mean this in a spiritual theological way we're we're all interested in saving our lives we're interested in living on Uh, we see this we know this text a lot of us who've been with church yeah okay I have to die to self And a lot of times we put this very generally. 
You know, Jesus calls you to come and die, die to self. And, and some of us get the idea in that, that Jesus wants to rub my personality out. You know, he, he, wants, to, uh, he, he wants to take uh, the me out of me. And there's something wrong with, with me, myself. And, and that's really not what this is teaching. He's saying, here's what it looks like to, uh, to self-denial. It looks like taking up a cross. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means you're going to go to a place of death. What has to die? What has to die? Self-preservation, self-importance in the language of this particular text. And yet, don't we self-preserve every day? We do. I mean, we feed ourselves, we buckle our seatbelts, we clean the mildew out of our shower. We obey traffic laws, mostly. We exercise. We self-preserve. This is good. We follow Jesus in the normal course of life and and living. It's not compartmentalized. Now I will spend some time this afternoon following Jesus. It's comprehensive all through life. And so the normal course of life and living is full of self-preservation. Eating, exercising, hygiene, keeping a job, so on. All of that is self-preservation and it's all good and welcomed. So look again at verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It seems he's getting at something that's, um, well, how do we go about saving our own lives? Uh, in the spiritual theological consideration of it, the way we go about saving our own lives is we try to commend our own goodness to God. You know, you become a Christian. Some of us have a date in our Bible. We know exactly the moment God turned us from ourselves to Him. Others of us, it was more, um, we were around Christian people and eventually we realized we believed. And, and so whether yours was a, a progressive kind of coming to Him little by little or it was all at once radical conversion, to know that you follow Jesus in the, in the normal course of life and living You've, there's, there's been in your life, whether it was uh, this all-at-once kind of championed uh, moment, no turning back, or it was uh, little by little over time, you, you renounce saving yourself through your own good deeds. That's what makes you a Christian. I'm not going to save myself through my own good deeds. I, I, I can't make any efforts on my own to get what God offers. I have to put everything on Jesus. Lord, Accept me for Jesus' sake. That's, that gets us going. What gets us going in the Christian faith is we go to his cross first, and then we pick up our own. And so the most common way we tend to think in our circles of saving our own lives, Jesus says you want to save your life, uh, you're, you're going to lose it. And, and the way we typically direct that is, well, uh, I want to save my life by being my own savior, by my own self-righteousness, by my own goodness, And we think about it that way, and that's fine to think about it that way. But we can also go about this, saving our own lives, by putting all our weight on generating as much approval for ourselves with others as we can. We don't think about this side as much, but think about it with me in just the time we have here. We put all our weight on generating as much approval for ourselves with others as we can. Now, this is where the the, the cowardice comes in. I mentioned that earlier, that 
cowardice is a good example of what animates the kind of self-preservation that we need to die to, that we're being called to die to. Uh, do you remember back in the spring when we were in Revelation? We started the year here, 2020, with uh, Revelation. Turns out what a, what a year to teach Revelation, you know? It feels like everything is falling apart, and, and that's a book that, that talks about uh, when the world looks like that. But you remember in Revelation 21, toward the end, it's a beautiful chapter, because it presents Jesus saying, behold, I make all things new. And you think, man, the new Jerusalem, and I want to see that, and I want to be there. But then there's this verse in Revelation 21 that says who gets excluded from the new Jerusalem. And the top of the list is the cowardly. I'm reading from Revelation 21 here. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And you read that and you go, now wait a minute, I see where the rest of the list goes south. But you're telling me that hell is for cowards? How did cowardly make this list? Because, you know, I can't help my cowardice, that's what we think. Well, let's think about it this way. Biblically, the cowards are those who preserve themselves at all costs. And typically, the the everyday expression of this is by controlling and managing others' perceptions of us. Now, there's a sense in which we all do this. How we dress, how we groom ourselves, how we interact. It's not wrong to, to want to be thought of uh, as a, a person that's friendly and warm and, and all of that. So, so don't, don't hear me in all or nothing categories here. Cowards, biblically, cowardice as an, and is an example of the self-preservation that has to die. It's all about controlling and man- managing others' perceptions of us, which will typically cause us great anxiety. But it happens when we bind ourselves up in what others think about us And that becomes everything to us. And so what follows is, you know, I have to to become someone that everybody likes. I have to become someone that everybody speaks well of. Yeah, I I was watching, uh, boy, you know, watching SportsCenter these days has been like, what are we watching? You know, I mean, it's, you're watching it to see what in the world can these guys talk about. And uh, the other night, Scott Van Pelt was interviewing Nick Saban who had his Alabama mask on, had the elephant on it, and said his wife was making him wear it for the interview. And, and uh, you know, he's kind of a, a prickly guy, uh, Saban. And uh, Scott Van Pelt, who I like uh, as an interviewer, was asking him, you know, he's a good interviewer, he asked great questions, and he said, you know, what's, what, what's it like, you know, getting some of this pushback? And he goes, well, I'll tell you, you know, in his Nick Saban way. He goes, uh, if, if, if you can't stand people pushing back on you, don't get into leadership. You thought, well, you know, that's so obvious, but it's so true. You know, if you can't stand people having an image and and an idea of you that that isn't uh, straight, uh, then leadership is going to be something you'll struggle with. We do. Um, People struggle sometimes. I mean, let's put this in categories of, you know, I I don't share my faith because I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I'm afraid my neighbors will think I'm weird. Uh, or, you know, I won't speak up about justice concerns because I'm afraid I'll get criticized by conservatives. 
or I won't say the name of Jesus on my campus because there's all these progressive types there that have concluded that religious people are the enemy and, and they'll come after me. I sent out Friday in my little three quick things email I've been doing since coronavirus, uh, and it's purposely a potpourri of things. It goes all over the place. Uh, it's just kind of stuff I find and see that I, I think might be helpful. And, and then th- some things, sometimes I just put something in there that I want you to think about. I don't even necessarily totally agree with where the article is, is coming from, but I'll take that risk. But in, in Friday's um, three quick things, I linked to a post by Alan Jacobs. Alan Jacobs is a, is a Baylor professor. Before that, he was at Wheaton College for many years, which uh, is Ken Boer's alma mater. And he was writing about fear. That's the, the post. And he was using as an example of it a tenured professor in an elite law school who um, has kept himself closeted as a Christian. And Jacobs, as a professor, you know, uh, critiques this and says, this guy has withheld in withholding his witness. Uh, he, he's withheld from other Christians on his campus. Uh, God's got his people everywhere, and, and he could encourage some, and he's not done that. But he says what's interesting is that the guy is tenured. And in most academic settings, if you're tenured, that means you're basically untouchable. You, you have a job security like few other professions. And so Jacobs writes this. He could not, speaking of this professor who kept his Christianity quiet, he could not have feared losing his job, only potentially the, the approval of some of his colleagues. The very worst possibility would have been something like being denied promotion from associate to full professor. He said, setting aside whatever judgment he may face... When the Lord Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and he has to explain why he could not bring himself to utter the name of Jesus for terror of the associate dean, he says, I can't help wondering what would happen if the Christians of America in mass started confessing their faith openly. Not going on a crusade against sexual deviancy or whatever, but he's not talking, he said, not, not culture warring, but simply saying that we believe Jesus is Lord and we hope to serve him. And what that means is that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to comfort the orphans and the widows in their distress. We're to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And we're to put no other gods before him, Jacob says, even the strong gods who preen and strut on social media. Facebook and Twitter, he puts in parentheses, are principalities and powers, and we should never forget it. The way to kill self-preservation, Jacobs is saying, is to stand on your tenure in Christ. He uses that academic reality of tenure. A professor gets tenure and he's not going to be gotten rid of. Uh, He's safe. He's secure. And Jacobs is saying, you have a kind of tenure in Christ. It means your life is secure, ultimate security. And so the kind of cowardice that God judges in his own people is the kind that actually keeps us from getting close to Jesus because what he, Jesus, thinks of us matters less than what others we must have think well of us think. And so to take up our cross is to have the courage. And it's a courage you have to develop, but it's the courage to risk being shamed for the sake of the one who does not shame us himself. It's really malignant how cowardice works. Christians get stuck in it. I've been stuck in it at times. 
And so, you know, what I'm saying here, just to put a fine point on it, I guess, is I'm not saying you need to speak your mind every time you have an opinion. Uh, Not necessarily. The kind of uh, angle I'm taking here, it's not permission to run roughshod over people and call that the courage of your convictions. Now, I I think the closer you get to Jesus, I, I think the better you are with people. I think it's one of the indications of, am I growing in Christ, is not just in my, it's not social skills so much, but am I willing to let my gentleness be evident to all, even if that means somebody who's misconstruing or, or misunderstanding me goes uh, uh, unchallenged by me? There's a time to defend yourself, sure. But what Jesus removes in this helping us die to our own self-preservation is the stinger of having to justify myself all the time or defend myself or prove myself. You die to that in Christ because of Christ. And that keeps us, because it's because of Jesus, that keeps us from being self-congratulatory about it. But you realize, you know, the better part of taking up your cross at times is extending to another the grace that God has extended to you. To actually stop and think, this person has made me mad or this person is frustrating me and what I could do right now is tell them off. What I could do right now is say, who do you think you are? Well, you know, who do I think I am to say that? But what I could do or I could do in this moment is show them the grace that God has shown me. What did God do for me when I uh, was in my sin? He, He showed me grace. Second takeaway, closeness to Jesus requires the death of self-importance. And this is where we talk a little bit about pride. Self-importance animates pride. Now I think about pride here because of this imagery. The imagery of the cross itself and when it meant to go on a cross, to be put on a cross. You know, there is no possible way to take that on and be a proud person. Think about it. There's no possible way to take up your cross and be a person of pride. See, if you or I have something to do with our salvation, if it works like this, that we saved ourselves, basically God did his part in offering us grace and we did our part in showing that we were worthy. If that's the way it worked, then we can complain about being called to self-denial. We can say, God, what are you doing? Why are you calling me to, to this? Uh, Because we would think of cross-carrying as an indignity or uh, an association that's beneath us if we contributed to our own salvation, if our salvation was in any way other than all of grace. But if salvation is all of grace, you realize there's nothing God cannot ask of us. And what God asks of us, He does Himself anyway, (laughs) over and over again. You know what pride is, biblically, It's any and every resistance to the grace of God. Uh, There's a self-superiority complex, you know, uh, involved in that where you think, well, I'm I'm too good, I'm I'm sufficient in my own self, I don't need grace. And there's an inferiority complex uh, reality to that where you think uh, I'm too bad and God could never want to have anything to do with me. But the scripture says more than once, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when you take that sentence in its entirely, it means the, the, the grace that could go to the, the, pri- the, the prideful goes to the humble. And it doesn't go to the prideful because the prideful don't want it. 
The prideful refuse it by superiority complex means and inferiority complex means. But look again at verse 27. For the Son of Man, verse 27, Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. So when Jesus called himself Son of Man, he's saying, the one Daniel, Old Testament prophet, previewed, I'm him. When the Son of Man comes with his angels in the glory of his Father, verse 27, how does our self-importance look compared to that? I think it was Max Lucado years and years ago said something to the effect in one of his books about uh, if, you, uh, if you want to impress a NASA engineer with your paper airplane. The glory of God writ large. The Son of Man comes with His angels. And I'm going to preen about in self-importance? This is why it has to die. If we have done salvation God's way, the verse goes on. Uh, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels and the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. You say, what, is, what have we have done? What does that mean? There's that place in the Gospels where the people say, what do we have to do to get the life of God? What is the work that God requires? And Jesus answers, the work of him is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And when you believe in the one that he has sent, then the works follow. And like the imagery of the long, slow death that crucifixion is, the works, sometimes, God is patient. He goes over a whole lifetime with us, continuing to work out his will and his way in our, in our heart. But you carry your cross in response. We're freed by his cross to carry ours and to seek the death of our own self-importance, which doesn't mean you become anybody's doormat. You know how the disciples would shake their dust off their feet? They'd go to a place that wouldn't hear them, wouldn't receive what they were saying about Jesus, and the, the, they would literally take their sandals off and shake the dust off their, their feet. I, I, that gesture, the more I think of it, is incredibly psychologically healthy. Because what pride will do is it'll rehearse over and over again, why didn't they accept me? Why can't they agree with me? Why can't they see it my way? And, and you keep asserting when you feel like that. You keep trying. You keep trying to get somebody to, to agree with you. And, and that's nothing but pride. I mean, you can't stand the blow to your own self-importance. I have that. We all have that, even a, just a little bit. It's like when, we were, when our children were little, a Father's Day aside here, and um, we were trying to get them to admit something they had done. And we learned to say, well, did you maybe do it just a little bit? You know, and they'd go, uh-huh, just a little bit. Okay, I know you did it. I know this mural on the wall and crayon is yours. That's not where mom paints. Mom paints elsewhere. So I know you did this, but I want you to tell me you did it. And at first, no, no, I didn't do that. Did you maybe do it just a little bit? Did you go to the crayon box and pick a crayon? Uh-huh, I did that. Okay, so we're building something here. We're moving out to it. Same kind of thing. Pride is that urge and that impulse to say, no, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not guilty of that, or, or uh, this person is, is, I've got to convince them that they're wrong, or I've, I've got to show this person that, that I'm right, even just a little bit, you know. I don't, um, I, I think that this, this, 
the reality of this passage when it comes right down to it. Verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The whole reality of that is, is whether you talk about it as an exchange of my life for his, etc. All the ways people talk about it, it really comes down to what can I do about my pride? And the answer is I have to give it to him. I give it to him. And so when I, somebody misconstrues or misunderstands or misapplies motivations to me or, or uh, somebody gets in my way in a store or uh, gets the last uh, thing over here or whatever it is, or somebody in, outright insults me or, or acts antagonistic and aggressive, what do I do with that? What pulls that pride and that self-importance out of me? I have to come back to a recognition of death, that I am dying to that self-importance that doesn't so much preen about and posture as, look how great I am. It more or less shows up as, you know, I, I don't want anybody to tell me I can't. I don't want anybody to tell me I should. I don't want anybody doing anything that I don't like. That's pride. If salvation is all of grace, and it is, then God is pulling from us continually the self-preservation that causes us to cower and hide and the self-importance that causes us to throw too much of ourselves out there and act like life is really all about us. There's grace for that. It's cross-shaped grace. We don't get close to Jesus without the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us uh, in this text a lot to think about and to keep thinking about long after this time. Lord, pull from us the uh, cowardice that is an expression of self-preservation. Show us what that looks like, particularly in a troubled day. That we would not add to the wounds and the hurts, but that we would be involved in healing them. And Christian conviction can heal if it's graciously and gently applied. And Lord, that you'd pull out of us the pride and the self-importance. That you would uh, cause us to not be so, so mindful of what everybody else thinks. That we get entangled in that and we really lose sight of the ultimate privilege of being a follower of yours. Which is what you think of us matters most. And what you've determined for us is all that ultimately matters. And that we would find freedom in this. And that we would find experientially a closeness to you that is ours to enjoy. Even in talk of dying to ourself, there's a joy set before us. That we endure these things for now. But we find in that joy an expression and an experience of life in you that we've always wanted. We pray to that end, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.